Welcome to The Gaggle, an AZ Central podcast where we chat with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you fully informed on the state's political news. I'm your host, Yvonne Winget Sanchez. I cover national politics for the Arizona Republic. And I'm Ron Hansen, also a national reporter for the Republic. In today's episode, we're talking to Andrew Pyatt. He was a campaign senior advisor for Joe Biden's team here in Arizona. He's going to break down how they mobilized voters in order to flip Arizona blue in the presidential race. Pyatt was Senator Kirsten Sinema's campaign manager in 2018. He helped her secure Democrats' first win in 30 years for a U.S. Senate seat. Pyatt has a long history of helping Democrats in the House and the Senate win their campaigns. And he's really familiar with the landscape here in Arizona, which, as we've been reporting on now for a couple of years, is rapidly changing. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Glad to be with you. So Arizona wound up being the closest swing state in the country. Some folks uh, called the race quickly within hours, really, of the, of the polls closing, maybe too quickly in some instances. How close did the campaign think that Arizona was going to be in the end? Well, thanks again for having me. Uh, yep, you're taking me back to November 3rd. Uh, had a couple of calls that night from the AP and Fox. I, I think we always felt that the race was going to be close. Um, and uh, as we got closer to Election Day, uh, the sort of pattern that you saw where we would open up uh, a big lead on election night um, that would narrow eventually was something we expected to see. So we weren't surprised by what we were seeing. Um, we were obviously thrilled that the calls came in, but we weren't surprised by them either. We felt good about where we were on November 3rd, late in the evening. So given that you had um, seen the shape of this go the way that you had expected with early leads and knew that it was going to come back somewhat, when did you really know that uh, Arizona was going to uh, to go to the Democrats this year? Uh, I think, we've again, we felt good on November 3rd. Uh, we wanted to see some more information. Really, really pleased again, and I, I don't know if we'll come back around to this, but uh, I thought everyone who administered the election in Arizona uh, at the state and the county levels uh, did a wonderful job. Um, the fact that they had started counting 14 days and tabulating 14 days out as opposed to seven allowed us to see more information uh, on November 3rd. Um, so there's always a, a period in Arizona in a close election, really in any election, but you're very interested in the close election between the last batch of results Tuesday and Wednesday morning, um, where you're sort of gathering information from the various counties about how much is left, how much work is left to do uh, in each of those counties. And, and as we all know, um, that's a kind of a variable you, you can estimate, but uh, you don't know how many people are going to walk in their ballot. You have some sense of what's left that could be walked in and you don't really have, you have an estimate, but you don't have that pegged. So um, once we sort of the dust had settled from election day and election night reporting, and we had a chance to sort of um, gather information from around the state, from the various counties, um, and we had a good sense of what was left out there, uh, we felt like we were in a strong position. Remember, we were up by more than 200,000 votes at this point. Um, so 
um, when you took a look at the numbers and just how Trump would have to perform um, and Martha McSally would have to perform to whittle away at that big lead, uh, we felt like we were in a strong position. I will say um, I much preferred the vibe of 2018 where we sort of came from behind and closed and we're growing a lead thereafter to the um, to the narrowing this year, but uh, felt good in both both cases. So everyone would gather around their computers, on their phones, watch TV, watch live streams to watch that narrowing happen every day and every night. What was that like for you? You were not just some casual observer, right? This is this is what you do. So what was that like watching that margin narrow every single day? You, you love to be there's there, you know, I think the human brain is wired to like process information in a way that if it gets closer, that's bad. Um, but it was good to talk uh, with the team and to keep grounded in, in our conversations with you guys, too, that um, there were goals that that needed to be hit each time there was a, a release of, of more ballots that had been processed um, by the Trump campaign and they were consistently missing them. Um, there were one or two out of Maricopa um, that you could call, I guess, favorable for him um, in the maybe Thursday period, uh, the first couple. But even those weren't north of 60 percent where he needed to be. And so while it was closing, it wasn't closing at the rate necessary. Um, and so, you know, anything that we saw come in anywhere that was below around that 60 percent threshold, uh, we felt great about it. And so. Yeah, there's some fatigue that goes on, but um, I think that, you know, being grounded in, in what actually needs to happen um, was, was a good recipe to get through it. But to answer what it was like, there was uh, there were some definitely some some Zoom hangouts um, where people were sort of had the Zoom up, but were clicking refresh um, a lot of a lot of uh, text chains. Um, it's better to do it in a group. So that tells us how you got to the magic number of winning. Uh, but talk to us a bit about how you pulled together the coalitions that you ultimately needed in this race uh, to to get to that number. Um, obviously, in a race this tight, every vote mattered. But it seems like uh, there should be some notable uh, members of that coalition. Talk about how it is that you all were able to get over the top where other Democrats had fallen short? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I've seen some, I've listened to some of y'all's reporting and, and read some of it too. I, I, the top line thesis of um, everything mattered. Like there's enough credit to go around here. Uh, everybody's efforts mattered. And I think for me, um, what's important to note is uh, in Arizona, whether you're Republican or Democrat, um, you can't win with just your base at this point. Uh, it is that competitive state, call it purple, call it swing, whatever you want to call it. Um, you need your base plus uh, the folks in the middle, these independents who have shown a willingness at this point um, to break from tradition and um, support statewide Democratic candidates or recent tradition anyway. Uh, so what I'd say, I would start with actually um, Democrats and Latino voters. Uh, um, we needed, this was a huge uh, turnout election. We knew it was going to be. 
uh, and we knew we would need every last bit of support from there. I think the campaign did a couple of things early on um, that were instrumental in that. One is staffing up in a way um, that would lead us to have conversations that were uh, focused on Latino outreach and relevant to the community, led by people from that community, um, that we were sort of talking to the people who've been doing the work in the state uh, for many years before us. Uh, and we did, you know, we had a state director in Jessica Mejia, uh, who has some history in Arizona uh, and was a state director in California during the primary for Joe Biden. Uh, she did a tremendous job and staffed up um, further um, through her efforts with Larry Sandigo, uh, our Latino outreach director, Cynthia Aragon was our political director. Um, those folks built uh, a Latino leadership council. Um, I think the numbers were approaching 100 by the end of the campaign. And this wasn't just a, a sort of ceremonial thing that they convened that group each week to get feedback, to get counsel, to get organized. Um, and then, you know, what I would really say, whether it was Latino outreach or just general um, work with registered Democrats, um, the campaign took the perspective that no one is just a get out the vote target. There's no October, like, we'll, we'll talk to you then. Everyone needed to be educated. We had a great candidate in Joe Biden and later a great VP nominee in Kamala Harris. Uh, we felt that the Latino community especially, but all voters um, needed more information about who these folks were, why they were relevant to their day-to-day -day lives. Um, and I think that that is something that good candidates, successful candidates in Arizona, there's a common thread running through, uh, less conversations about the latest fight in Washington, DC, and more conversations about like why I get what your day-to-day -day is and how I think I can make it better. And finally, like the willingness to work with anyone to actually achieve that for you, regardless of party. So um, you got to talk about the Latino work that was done. It was huge uh, on the other side of the ledger. I'm talking too much here. I know that, um, you know, Arizona still has more registered Republicans than Democrats. That's not enough to get it done. Uh, is to just turn out every last Democrat. You need to win a good share of the independent vote and peel off your fair share of registered Republicans, which were frankly available to us in 2018 and even more so probably in 2016. Um, so we did a ton of work um, to highlight, I think, the now president-elect's background and his work throughout the years, many years of uh, reaching across the aisle, getting things done. Uh, the president-elect and Dr. Biden are military parents. Uh, that is something that's appealing. It was a priority to lift it up. Um, and then just tapping into folks' um, general frustration with the pandemic um, and the lack of a plan uh, and a willingness to even acknowledge it at some points um, was a key piece for us. And I don't think we ever offered um, anything but but a willingness to like acknowledge reality, communicate with people openly and honestly about it, to listen to the experts, to get the right team in place and to communicate what the plan is. And uh, y'all know better than I, um, folks who are trying to enjoy retirement, folks who are trying to raise a family and worried about 
their career versus their kids going to school or not and falling behind. Tons of frustration out there. Um, I think we tapped into that and, and laid out a better path forward than what was being offered. And that was a, a, a key part of building this sort of independent and Republican support that you need to win statewide, at least in 2020. Going to the point about the military component and uh, I think Arizona's home to what, 600,000 or so um, veterans, uh, one of the highest in the country, and you roll in the McCain factor. Um, We presume that his legacy and his uh, work on behalf of the state played a bigger role here than anywhere else in the country. Would you would you kind of agree with that premise and Cindy McCain's endorsement of Biden? Like how much, you know, might that have come into play? Um, and did it matter, particularly in the suburbs with women? I absolutely think Cindy McCain's endorsement mattered and John McCain's legacy matters in this state. Um, I remember in 2018 uh, when Senator McCain passed away, um, now Senator Cinema suspended her campaign um, and we went and uh, did a service project um, two days in a row uh, because that's the best way we could come up with and she could come up with for us to um, honor a man who had served his state and his country uh, basically all of his life. And that that's not meant to say that we did anything special there, but it is meant to answer your question, is it meaningful? It's incredibly meaningful, uh, McCain's legacy um, in the state. And I think that just stands in stark contrast to um, the way that uh, he was talked about by our current president, um, further just broadening out to how Arizona feels about those who are currently serving and keeping its promise to those who have returned um, I, I think it's, it's just firmly embedded in the culture of this country, but especially Arizona. And I don't think Arizonans, I don't think suburban women or really Arizonans of any stripe agree that those who have served are suckers and losers. Um, I think McCain's stance was a brave one. She's been right on one team for her entire career, but um, you know, that team always said country first. Um, and you know, at that point she she made it, you know, a pretty bold, in my opinion, stand. And I think a lot of people who maybe were on the fence and needed some encouragement uh to do something a little bit different, and that would be voting for a Democrat for president, um, got a lot of permission from from her stand. And I think it was tremendously meaningful and Uh, I think the campaign in Arizona and nationally is going to be eternally grateful uh, for that. So one thing that struck us as notably different from 2016 as well is the share of voters who did not select a third party uh, option this time. Um, It appears that, uh, you know, the president ended up with one more point uh, of the overall vote in Arizona. The rest of what had been third party voters went to Joe Biden, uh, it looks like. So was this um, 
were those people choosing Joe Biden or were they, you know, doing something different than what they had done in 2016 and saying neither of the major party candidates? How much of this is is people really kind of uh, adopting the the president elect's uh, message as opposed to rejecting the current presidents? Yep. Um, some of that would be uh, my best educated guess. What I guess what I would say that is different uh, between 2016 uh, and 2020 as well that might animate that choice is uh, the Biden campaign ran a ton of positive communications, just a ton. It was always there. You saw that out of Mark Kelly. You saw that out of Kirsten Cinema before as well. And I think that that's a, you know, as a strategist, that's something I'm a fan of, sort of always having something positive uh, about your vision and, and the style of leadership that you're offering. Um, the way that 2016 played out, y'all know it better than me. You covered it. I wasn't here. Um, but I, I don't know that there was a ton of positive information on broadcast television uh, on people's smartphones and tablets uh, about Hillary Clinton and why they should should vote for her. So I do think, um, you know, the nature of of the information that was available plays a role. And I frankly think that they're, you know, the stakes were they seemed higher in this election. I think for for people uh, writ large, uh, I think that's why you saw turnout increase so much. I think that's why you saw less sort of attrition from the major parties to third parties. And and just kind of logistically speaking, there were less options. Um, if you weren't inclined to vote libertarian, you didn't really have anywhere to go uh, except to write in. Um, although uh, our friend Kanye West tried uh, and failed, as we all remember. Um, but yeah, um, I don't know. I don't know, Ron. Does that answer your question? What do you think? Yeah, I think it does answer the question, actually. Um, and I think you're you're probably right about the stakes. It just felt like this this was an election with more clarity about it, perhaps, uh, than in 2016. Um, one other thing, how much did the pandemic factor into the way that you all prosecuted your case and, you know, just operationally, um, pursued, uh, winning Arizona? Well, I, I mean, I think a thread that runs through, um, every federal election, certainly statewide ones, um, is an issue of leadership, an issue of sort of security, right? Security can mean a lot of different things. There's economic security, which obviously goes into like your ability to take care of your family and your community financially, but it also means healthcare. Um, it can also mean, right, like national security. Uh, it can mean lots of different things. I think 2020 security means having uh, a solid leadership team in place in this country that's got a handle on um, this pandemic and a plan um, to get us through it. And I don't think that means having good news every day. I think it means clear communication about what's going on, what people might expect, uh, and frankly, what's being asked of them. I think Americans and Arizonans are incredibly willing, history tells us, to step up um, and to do what they need to do for their communities, for their states, for their countries, but they they have to be asked. And um, I don't know that they they were. And I think that the um, you know, I, 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 you can't get away from, from the pandemic as being so, sort of central focus of what was going on in 2020 and this campaign. So, um, 
I think it colored everything. And I think people want their, um, their lives back and they want their security back, whatever that means. It might, that might even mean like going and seeing their grandkids, which is, you know, where they're at in their lives. And, um, I think to the degree people could detect any sort of light at the end of the tunnel with this, the president would be in the current president would have been in great shape, but there was that there is none and there hasn't been sufficient communication about what we might do um, to get through it. And I think the Biden campaign offered a pretty clear and consistent um, contrast to that in, in what his approach would be and, and the team's approach would be uh, to dealing with it. By contrast, um, President Trump visited Arizona more times than anyone ever has in a presidential race. He came to Arizona, you know, from, from Bullhead City all the way down to Yuma, Tucson, multiple visits in the metro Phoenix area. And, I mean, he talked quite a bit about his own coronavirus diagnosis, his recovery, how he could kiss people in the crowd, for example, how he um, really was sort of invincible now from this disease that has killed so many and sickened so many. How much do you think those continued visits by President Trump, by Vice President Mike Pence, by his daughter, his sons, his high-profile surrogates, how much did those help Biden win? Well, I think, I think that's a great point. Um, I didn't realize that that was like fact that more visits than any candidate in history. That seems right. It felt some days, um, like, are they here again? Um, I bet for y'all too, actually. Um, so I, I, I think I would loop back to, it's sort of indicative of a flawed in my estimation, strategic approach to winning Arizona, I think the state is perhaps one in a couple of races for a couple of cycles where uh, Republicans had a path available to them that was base only. We just turn out we have more Republicans um, than there are Democrats. And so we were just going to turn out every last Republican and we will win. And that worked. This is no longer the case. Uh, it was not in 2018. It's not in 2020. Um, you know, that I know that they were telling you guys, um, telling everyone who would listen that um, they were going to sort of subsume uh, any good work that was done in Maricopa or Pima County for the Biden-Harris ticket um, with, with massive, massive turnout in um, other counties. Uh, they did a good job. They turned out a lot of voters. Uh, I wouldn't take that away from them, but I would just circle back to like on the visits and what was being said at the visits and who that might appeal to. Um, it is not a winning formula in Arizona. I don't think it will be going forward uh, to go with the base only strategy. You have to be mindful of the folks who decide elections at this point statewide in Arizona, and those are independent voters. If you could have done this over again, if you could have a do-over, would you have uh, President-elect Joe Biden come to the state more frequently, make more than one visit? Uh, I would, I would one, I would choose not to do it over. I like the, the way it went. And uh, two, no, I think, I, I think we did what was right. I think 
this was a challenging year for all aspects of, of life, right? Uh, there were a lot of adaptations that we had to make um, to what political campaigns do on a day-to-day -day basis. And I do think um, we did a good job uh, transitioning to sort of a digital environment and offering up content that was uh, interesting, um, that gave people a chance to, to interact with the candidate. Um, but no, I mean, look, I think when we came, it was unique for Arizona in that it was their first, their, they being uh, President-elect Biden and VP-elect Harris, their first joint appearance anywhere since the convention. Uh, I think people were thrilled. Um, you know, they appeared with Latino leaders. They appeared with Native American leaders from across the state, Cindy McCain. They saw several small businesses. Um, it was a really great day. Um, those trips are a lot of work. So I, my heart goes out to the Trump, the Trump staff in, in Arizona for all of those visits. But no, I, I don't think I would change a thing. So you obviously were, were uh, a key uh, part of the 2018 campaign where uh, Democrat Kirsten Sinema defeated Republican Martha McSally. There are some obvious parallels in those two races um, this year and the one two years ago. But how much of the day-to-day -day sort of campaign work in Arizona borrowed or was informed by the 2018 race? Yeah. I, I mean, a couple of things on Senator Cinema. Um, I've worked for uh, lots of different bosses. Uh, rare to find one who works harder and is also so sort of intuitive and in touch with what the pulse of whether it's a district, a state, or whatever, um, what people want and how laser focused she's able to be on this matters to my people and this doesn't, and I'm gonna go to the former, right? A hundred percent of the time. Um, so that certainly informed some of my approach. I learned a lot about, about Arizona and Arizonans from, from her. Um, I think she definitely showed a path um, and there are parallels that are just innate to, to cinema and I think to VP Biden um, and their careers, this again, this sort of willingness to work with anybody uh, to get things done. There's a happy warrior component to it. They're, they're sort of like not real quick with uh, a sharp elbow for a colleague. Like, in fact, it almost never happens, um, right? They'll debate you on policy all day and tell you when you're wrong for their for their state or their country, but uh, it's not ever gonna get personal. I think that stands in stark contrast, again, to, to what we've seen out of the current president. And um, unfortunately to Senator McSally's, both of her campaigns, um, you know, I personally didn't think um, some of the some of the tactics and some of the, the words that were used uh, about Senator Sinema were particularly productive and um, I think we saw more of it in 2020, unfortunately, um, against a fellow veteran <laughs> that she happened to be running against. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I do think that there are some parallels between um, not only the path to victory for cinema, Kelly, Biden, but I do think they all proffer this sort of style of leadership that eschews the sort of 
one team is right 100% of the time, um, which is smart because I know a lot of Arizonans and I just know a lot of people and people don't think that one side is right all of the time. There's no, it's not sustainable in any relationship in life and, and it doesn't make sense for politics either. So it took Governor Doug Ducey, who obviously is a Republican and sort of emerged in the past couple of years as a key ally of the presidents and the vice presidents. Um, it took him quite a bit of time to acknowledge that there was a winner in the presidential race and likewise in the Senate race. What was that like um, behind the scenes with with the campaign sort of waiting for him to arrive at this moment and declare in an official sort of capacity that there was a winner? Well, I think the, the campaign was confident that folks in Arizona were going to like do their appointed duties um, and fulfill their obligations. And if there were um, anything that would come up through that process, um, that it would be flagged. And if not, things would proceed as normal. Um, you know, technically he wasn't late in, in sort of doing any, any of that. Um, you know, yesterday was the deadline and he did his duty. I think the, look, the, the Trump campaign hasn't had a lot of success, um, with their post-election activity. Um, it has been robust and aggressive. Um, we didn't spend a ton of time talking about, um, what Doug Ducey, uh, Governor Ducey might do or say, but I will say, um, it, it just doesn't, it, it's sort of what we've seen yesterday after the election was certified, um, it doesn't portend well, I don't think, for Republican efforts in the state. There, there can't be, right, this fissure between Republicans who um, sort of have circled the wagons around Arizona. And let me back up. <laughs> when you're questioning Arizona's elections and the integrity of Arizona's elections, um, I think that they've been careful to like make it sound like there's some they or someone behind the bail. There's no, there, we know these people, right? They're Republicans, they're Democrats, they're husbands and wives. They live in our communities. They've been elected by their fellows in other cases. They're volunteering. Some of them are, you know, it's just their job. Um, but if you're questioning the process here, and I think frankly, Governor Ducey was sort of saying some of these things. If you're questioning Arizona's election process, you're questioning Arizona and Arizonans. Um, and I do think it's probably time to circle the wagons. And um, I'm glad that he did. Um, but we haven't spent a ton of time fretting about like when he would sort of make it official with a public statement, um, but very, very glad um, that he was able to do that yesterday. So let's turn the page uh, to 2022. That cycle is just uh, getting started now. Uh, I imagine a lot of Democrats. <laughs> Not even Christmas, Ron? <laughs> Never. Okay. Uh, 
I imagine a lot of Democrats are feeling good about what they have seen the last few cycles here in Arizona, especially statewide uh, on that uh, historically midterms uh, for the party in power in the White House are not uh, pleasant affairs. Um, any words of caution or advice to Democrats as they try and figure out how to uh, replicate what you have been a part of now the past two cycles? Sure. I think it's a good question. I won't disagree with you on history. Uh, I will say, I mean, if I'm taking away a few things from 2020, uh, history and bold predictions based on what has happened before are probably not in my repertoire for a minute. So, um, look, Arizona is a competitive state. It's going to remain a competitive state. I'll circle back to what I have said. Uh, you cannot win Arizona as a statewide candidate with only your base. You need your base and some more. Uh, the independent vote decides elections here. And I would say, um, for whatever history might say, um, more recent history in Arizona has proven that Democrats know how to grow this coalition beyond their base. Republicans have shown not only an in inability to do so, but kind of an unwillingness to try, um, at least in the Trump era. And again, like what we saw yesterday, um, there appears to be a fissure um, in the Republican Party uh, in Arizona, and um, they're going to have to figure that out because, uh, you know, there will not be 2020 levels of turnout in 2022, no matter how many rallies you have uh, throughout the state. So um, that formula is not going to work for them. And, uh, you know, on the other side, like, we're going to have to dig in and the work continues. I think, again, there's been a lot written and a lot said about, um, the past 10 years post SB 1070 and what's gone on uh, in Latino communities, not from a necessarily uh, Democratic Party perspective, but like community groups that have sprung up to do the work. Those groups are important and their work, uh, I am sure, will continue from a candidate and a party perspective. I, I think voter registration always is going to remain uh, important and sort of closing that gap with Republicans. and. Um, the one thing I think I'm optimistic about, we have done a lot of work in the past two cycles with the permanent early vote list and adding voters um, to the roles of, of what we call Pebble here in the state. Um, that has been the gold standard. We have made a lot of headway there. And I think once you get people to do a thing, uh, it's not just signing up for Pebble, right? It's returning that ballot. It gets incrementally easier to do it. Um, and there's there's sort of a growing bench of folks who have been deeply involved in these uh, larger scale operations um, over the past couple of cycles. Um, and hopefully a lot of them are going to remain in the state and sort of grow the bench of institutional knowledge and talent. Um, that Kelly campaign, by the way, uh, by the time I showed up to help um, President-elect Biden, over the summer were sort of well on their way to building a really, really highly functional, big, robust, efficient uh, sort of machine. And, and, you know, that was a big part of our success, the head start that they provided. But Mark Kelly's team is, is very good. His campaign was extremely disciplined. It stayed focused on what mattered to Arizonans and, you know, the, um, the sort of tactics were sound on the the turnout operation as well. I think all that portends well for 2022, but 
hard cycle, a lot of work to do. Final question before we let you go. Um, you obviously know Mark Kelly's team well. You know uh, Senator Cinema very well. Mark Kelly is going to be sworn in um, today uh, over in, in Capitol Hill in the U.S. Senate. How do you anticipate this relationship between two Democratic senators from Arizona playing out? Do you think that they'll work closely together on issues? Do you think they will work to try to separate themselves um, on the issues that they care most about? Um, you know, I, I think that this is going to be a completely different dynamic from one that we have become accustomed to with um, Senator Cinema and uh, former Senator Martha McSally. I think there's going to be a ton of areas of overlap for them, uh, issues around health care, issues around veterans, um, an economy um, that is like back on track and is working for small businesses in Arizona, like the restaurant and bar industry has had the roughest year, I would guess, since 2010, since the economic downturn. Um, I don't guess, I'm sure of it. And um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to address all of that. And I think that they're going to be probably a great team, maybe the best team uh, in the chamber uh, at advocating for their state. So I'm looking forward to it. Well, very good. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you appearing on The Gaggle and look forward to having you back. So we... I hope we, so. Thank you all. Thank you, Yvonne. Thanks, Ron. Thank you so much. You bet. Take care. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. All right, that's it for today, Gaggle listeners. While we still have you, please don't forget to rate and review our show and share it with a friend or two. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm at Yvonne Winget. And I'm at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. Today's episode was edited and produced by Maritza Dominguez with oversight from Katie O'Connell. Thanks so much for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. We'll see you next week.